Good morning, fellowship. Good to be with you. My name is Rob, and I'll just kind of add my welcome to what you've already heard from um, the team and Dana in particular. Grateful to be here. Uh, I've got allergies or a head cold or something. Somebody told me back there I sound a little like Morgan Freeman. So I thought, well, that's pretty good, I guess. They said, as long as you don't go into Barry White, we'll be okay. You're going to keep it at Morgan Freeman. All right. Open your Bibles to John chapter 2. Last week, if you were here, Lloyd began chapter 2 in our Gospel of John. Of course, John has 21 chapters, so we're going to be here for a little bit, a little while. Uh, but what an amazing journey we've already been in. And, you know, the reason that we felt like God was leading us to this particular book of the Bible for this season is we're putting an intentional emphasis at fellowship on following Jesus. And the, the idea that we even rearticulated our mission to make that more clear. We want to become a community of people who follow Jesus with our whole heart and help others do the same. And so as we thought about that, how, how do we really begin to take following Jesus seriously? We thought, let's take a hard look at Jesus. Let's slow down and let's go through a gospel verse by verse. Gospel of John is oftentimes the first book of the Bible that people read when they've just decided to follow Jesus. And so this is where we are. We've now been in it for several weeks, of course. And I want to say one quick thing about Lloyd. If you missed his message last week, go back and listen to it. They're all posted online. They're available. And by the way, the Brentwood service is posted. The Franklin service is posted in audio format. The, the Brentwood service is video. You can watch either one or listen to either one. It's the same message, essentially. Uh, we're one week behind the Brentwood campus. And that's wonderful for myself and Lloyd because we have the opportunity to write one sermon and get to preach it twice the two different congregations. And I have to say, it gets better the second time. You guys, get, you guys get the better goods, in my opinion. At least that's true for me. I can't speak for Lloyd. But uh, Lloyd's been here over 20 years. You know, he's a founder of the church. He has no plans anytime soon that I'm aware of of slowing down, so we're really grateful for that. He and I um, work tremendously well together. He's probably happier than he's ever been in, in many ways. That's what he's shared with me. But we went to Lloyd a few months ago, and we said, Lloyd, we realized you've never had a sabbatical in all the 20 plus years. And, and, and he said, well, I've, I've never really felt like I really needed one. And we said, well, we just think it's good practice to have a rest and have a break. So we've gone to Lloyd and we said, we want you to take two months off. And so Lloyd is gonna take off the months of October and November. You know, I think you'll hear him one more time next week uh, giving a message. And then after that, you won't see Lloyd again for a couple months. So Continue to come. Lloyd will be back, I promise. Uh, we're giving him a two-month break. He's gonna do some travel. He's gonna do some reading and just resting and spend time with his family. He is excited about that. And I told him, just, we're giving this to you because we need at least 10 more years from you. So that's our plan. But I just wanted to give you a heads up about that. But his message last week was particularly good because he's talking about the first miracle of Jesus, which in the Gospel of John, he refers to the miracles of Jesus as signs. And, and not every miracle is considered that. The sign in the Gospel of John is an important word. There are seven signs that Jesus does. And a sign is a particular type of miracle that's designed to authenticate Jesus, that's pointing to his identity, that's proclaiming this is who he is. He really is the Messiah. He really is the Son of God that has come. And one of the things Lloyd said last week is he said, you know, it's interesting that Jesus' first sign was it took place in these purification vessels. You know, he took the water that was in these Jewish purification vessels and he turned it into wine. It's wonderful. 
amazing tasting wine. And he made this statement that's it's symbolic that we're gonna find throughout the gospel that Jesus' words and actions will put him at odds with religious leaders. It's interesting, you know, if you ask someone on the street, what do you know about Jesus? The first thing they'll say is something probably religious. And the reality is Jesus is confronting religion all throughout the gospel. Now, that may not be a fair way to describe it, but what I mean is some of the legalistic uh, um, Jewish religion that had gone above and beyond the law, Jesus is constantly confronting that, and we're gonna see him confront the religious leaders today. So in our text today, another very well-known passage, a well-known part of Jesus's ministry, the text is gonna break down into three parts. Part one, Jesus cleanses the temple. That's what was just read to us a few minutes ago. Then part two, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. And part three, Jesus sees our hearts. Let's dive in part one. Jesus cleanses the temple. Take a look at verse 13 of chapter two of the Gospel of John. We have it here on the screen. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Anytime you talk here about Jesus going to Jerusalem, it's always gonna say he went up to Jerusalem. What's interesting about that is geographically, I'll put a map on the screen. Uh, we would say he went down to Jerusalem because he went south. Uh, for the most part, he's hanging out, hanging out up here. He's doing most of his ministry right around the Galilee region. You have Jerusalem down here in this area. So Jesus, several times a year, is gonna go south to Jerusalem. Why do you say he goes up to Jerusalem? Anyone know? It's the elevation, that's right. Now, they didn't think in terms of maps. You know, in ancient time, they weren't thinking north, south, east, west. They were thinking of topography and they were thinking of elevation. And Jerusalem is an elevated city. And so you would, you would ascend to Jerusalem and you would sing the Psalms of Ascent as you ascend to Jerusalem. And three times a year, all Jewish males above the age of 13 were commanded according to the law to travel to Jerusalem no matter where they were. Um, it was the, the Feast of Passover, which is where this particular event's gonna take place, the Feast of Weeks, which was also Pentecost, called Pentecost, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, or Feast of Booths. Those were the three festivals every year that the Jewish males above the age of 13 would go to Jerusalem. The other reason I wanted to show this to you on a map is Galilee and Jerusalem kind of become, you know, uh, symbolic in a way of the, the two geographic regions that have very different um, hearts toward Jesus, very different uh, amount of receptivity toward Jesus. Up here in Galilee, for the most part, hearts are more open. Down here in Jerusalem, where all the religious leaders are and, you know, the religious police, so to speak, uh, for the most part, Jesus does not get a good reception. So receptivity in the north, for the most part, you know, by and large, and rejection in the south. And of course, it's all got to culminate right here in Jerusalem, the capital city where Jesus will eventually uh, be killed and then resurrected. Let's go on to our next verses, 14 and 15. In the temple, now in Jerusalem, he found those who were selling oxen. oxen. <laughs> I kept saying last week, oxygen. They're selling oxygen. It's just a bunch of um, octogenarians there in Jerusalem needed the oxygen. They're selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. This has to be one of the most iconic moments in, in Jesus' life. It's presented in all four of the Gospels. Be kind of hard to overstate how provocative this was. Uh, Jesus is, in essence, picking a fight. You know, not, not for the sake of the fight. We'll see in a minute the deep reason, the, the passion of Jesus here and why he did this. But, but this, this was bold. 
Now, when you and I today hear the, the temple, we might think of, oh, okay, well, that's just a, a, a church. It's a gathering place. No, no, no. This was not just a church. This was the temple. There was only one temple. Every Jewish town had a synagogue, but you didn't actually worship in the synagogue. You would gather, you would hear the Torah uh, taught, but you didn't worship. Worship in the Jewish context meant sacrifice. That's what they associated with worship. And there was only one place allowed uh, in, in all of Judea and in Israel where sacrifice could take place, where true worship could take place. And that was the temple. It was the center point of religious life, cultural life, even political life for the, uh, the nation of Israel. To use a phrase from N.T. Wright, it wasn't just a church on a street corner. The temple was the beating heart of Judaism. And so Jesus walks into the beating heart and basically shuts it down. Now, Rob, what do you mean he, he shuts it down? He shuts down the temple. Well, without animals, there's no sacrifice. And without sacrifice, there's no worship. So at least for a temporary period of time, Jesus halts worship at the temple. And you get this picture of him coming in. You know, John's the only one that mentions the whip, by the way. It's quite an image of Jesus swinging a whip. You know, whatever that looked like, he's overturning the tables. It doesn't fit the picture we have in our heads of, you know, sweet Jesus, you know, with, with the, the pale skin and, you know, the little lamb around his shoulder. That's, this doesn't fit the picture we usually have of Jesus. He looks here more like Indiana Jones than the Lamb of God. Remember, everything Jesus did was intentional. So why was he acting so forcefully? Let's take a look in the text and we will see verse 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quotation from the Psalms. And, and they remembered, it's like, oh yeah, that's a messianic Psalm. And, and we're starting to see that zeal or passion for the house of God consume Jesus so to speak. Here's the reason right here in this verse that Jesus acted so forcefully. And if you're taking notes, I hope you are with a pen or pencil, underline this phrase. Jesus says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, the first thing that stands out in that sentence is what Jesus calls the temple. Let's put a box around this phrase, my father's house. That's what Jesus calls the temple. No one else called it that. They might have referred to it as the house of God, but they wouldn't have said my father's house. That's not how they would have talked. Jesus is asserting his unique identity as the only begotten or the only son of God. He's claiming to have a special connection to God the Father. He understands himself, Jesus does, as acting on the Father's behalf. So let me give you a little bit of an example, an analogy. Some of you in here hunt. I, I don't hunt, but I've got a lot of friends who hunt. And imagine that, that you're, you're hunting and you're on a piece of property that you know, maybe you know, it's a friend owns or you've got permission to be on that property, but the deer are not on that property. And it's been a frustrating hunt or you know, a day of hunting. And, and you know where the deer are. They're just on the other side of the property line. And that's someone else's property. But you think, you know, it's a massive piece of property. They, 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 will, know, they will not be within earshot or eyesight of this. And so you kind of wander across the property to go find where the deer are. And then before you know it, there's, there's a pickup truck that comes alongside you. And the guy rolls down the window and he says, 
excuse me, this is my father's property and we don't allow hunting. That's essentially what's going on here, you see. Jesus is saying, this is my father's house and, and I have authority over it because I'm the son of God. We, it's the family property. He's speaking on behalf of the father. And he says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, is there anything wrong with trade? If, if it's done justly, no, there's nothing wrong with trade. In fact, the trade was necessary as part of the sacrificial system because you know the people would come from all over Israel and they couldn't bring the sacrifice with them most times especially if they're coming from a distance. So it was necessary that they would buy, that they would exchange their money because the, the, the temple had an official currency that it would take. So they would exchange their money and then they would buy it. So there's nothing wrong with trade per se. So what was Jesus upset about? It was obviously where the trade was being done because he says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, I wanna show you Another thing, this comes from Mark chapter 11, and this is a parallel passage about the same event. So this gives us a little bit more information. And here, here's what Mark records. Is it not written, Jesus is saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. So it's not meant to be a house of trade. It's meant to be a house of prayer. And what's more, prayer for all the nations. But you have made it into, made it a den of robbers. The temple was intended to be a set-apart place where God would dwell with mankind and mankind would interact with him through prayer and worship. The temple was the connecting point between heaven and earth. It goes back to the image of Jacob's ladder we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you know, the intersection of heaven and earth. Jacob stumbles upon this place and he says, this is a special place. It's the gateway to heaven. I'm gonna call it Bethel, the house of God. The temple was designed to be the house of God, the intersection of heaven and earth. Now, to better understand why Jesus was upset, I need to show you one more thing. This is a diagram of the temple at the time of Jesus. And here's what you need to know. This part in here, only Jews could access the temple proper. In fact, you know, and then it got even more hierarchical. Only women could come here. Only Jewish men could come here. Only priests could come here. And only the high priest once a year could come into the Holy of Holies, which is marked right there as number one. Now, why does this matter? Look out here, guys. The Gentiles' courtyard, this large plaza, was as close as the Gentiles could get to the temple itself. And guess where all the buying and the selling was taking place? In the Gentiles' court. You see, what's happening here is the temple was no longer a house of prayer for all the nations. And I think this is what Jesus meant when he says, you've made it into a den of robbers. I don't, I don't think he was talking about the, you know, the money changers were keeping a little extra. Some of that might've been going on, but there's something bigger at stake. Jesus is saying, you're hoarding the glory of God. It's meant to be a house of prayer for all the people. Let the Gentiles in. And, and you start to see why Jesus would be passionate about this because his ultimate goal, his zeal of his own mission was that the whole world would be able to access God through him, him, the true temple. Now, think about, and go ahead and take that slide off and I'll go to the next slide in a minute, Michael, thank you. 
think about what life must have been like to be God in the flesh. Okay, now this is a, a strange thing for us to imagine. What would it be like to be God, you know, living in a human body? God himself came to earth in the middle of all our mess, like the, the, the middle of our selfishness and our, our climbing over one another. And Jesus dwelled among all of that, the hurting, the taking advantage of other people's weakness. Jesus saw it all. He must have felt it all more deeply than you or I could ever feel all the ickiness and the selfishness and the competitiveness. And in the middle of all that mess, there was supposed to be one sacred place and all the earth set apart where mankind could encounter the presence of God. And so Jesus came to that place and it was no longer what the father had intended it to be. It was now a house of trade instead of a house of prayer for all the nations and zeal for his father's house consumed him and Jesus did what he did because the temple had lost its way. It needed to be cleansed. It needed to be restored back to its intended purpose. And so that's part one of our text. Jesus cleanses the temple. Why did he cleanse the temple? Because it, it needed to be restored back to its purpose that God had intended for it. That's part one. Let's go to part two now. Jesus predicts his death. Let's look together at verse 18. Put that back on the screen. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Two real quick things on this. When you see the phrase, the Jews in John, you have to know what it refers to because it's not all Jews. Jesus was a Jew. His disciples were Jews. Most of the people Jesus interacted with in his ministry were Jews. So when it says the Jews, who's being referred to? The, the ones that are being referred to are the, the religious leaders who, who lived in and around Jerusalem, who really acted kind of like the uh, religious police, enforcing all the law, telling people what they could and could not do. And, and they had gone well beyond the law itself and they'd added all these layers on it. So when you see the Jews, these people ultimately became the ones who opposed Jesus most directly. So the Jews, these religious leaders come to Jesus. What sign do you show us? That's the exact same word Lloyd talked about last week, the, you know, the seven signs. And the first sign of Jesus when he ch changed the water into wine, that was only for the eyes of his disciples. The servants also saw it. Jesus' mother also knew. But it was a sign for the disciples. The religious leaders, I don't know if they'd heard rumors of that or not, who knows? But they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, show us a sign, prove yourself. Show us your sheriff's badge. <laughs> you claim that he's your father. Where's your credentials? Show us a sign for this word of God that you're supposedly giving us. Now, Jesus is gonna answer this request, but not in the way that you might expect. You might expect for Jesus to say, okay, you wanna see a sign? I'll show you a sign. And do some magical, miraculous thing right in front of their eyes. He could have done that, but it wasn't the right time for that. So instead, he simply says this, look at verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. Stop there for a minute. That's the sign. It meant nothing at that moment to the religious leaders. Jesus might as well have said, no, I'm not gonna give you a sign. Now, 
What he actually is doing, he says, you will see a sign. I'm gonna give you a future sign. But, but that's all Jesus gives. And it's so cryptic. It's so mysterious. Like you can just imagine what they would have thought. And in fact, we know what they were thinking. We see it in the next verse. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? By the way, the word you in the Greek is in the emphatic position. And, you know, in Greek, you'd put something as the first word of the phrase if you wanted to emphasize it. So what they're saying is like, taking 46 years, you will raise it up? Like, yeah, right. They're kind of mocking. They're kind of poking fun at him here. And then John, the narrator, steps in in verse 21 and, and he tells us what's actually going on. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. There's something so interesting going on here. Jesus is saying there will be a sign, but no one understands the sign yet. Jesus is saying, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And everyone there, the religious leaders and the disciples, all thought he was referring to the big building behind him. It was only later the disciples remembered. And John tells us here, it was after his resurrection. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It, really quick reference. Um, Jesus had dropped some breadcrumbs clues about this already, but, but they weren't yet putting two and two together. Do you, do you remember, I mentioned Jacob's Ladder a few minutes ago, but do you remember the context, you know, Nathaniel comes to Jesus and Jesus is like, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, what? How did you see me under the fig tree? You must be the Messiah. And Jesus says, you think that's impressive. You'll see greater things than that. He says, you will see the son of, you'll see the angels of heaven ascending and descending on the son of man. Reference to Jacob's ladder. What Jesus was telling them is, I am the true house of God. I'm the true ladder between earth and heaven. I'm the intersection point between heaven and earth. And you're gonna come to see that. So now next chapter, we see Jesus saying, destroy this temple, destroy this house of God. In three days, I'll raise it up. The disciples couldn't put it together yet, but Jesus was dropping them breadcrumbs. Now, the main reason this passage right now is, is so significant is this is the first reference in John that Jesus is going to die. And not just that he's going to die, but it's the plan. Jesus is like, okay, you wanna see a sign? Destroy my body is what he's meaning. Destroy this temple, the true temple, my body, the house of God. In three days, I'll raise it up. This is the plan, guys. The resurrection of Jesus would become the ultimate sign. I don't have time to go into a lot of detail on this, but all seven signs in the Gospel of John foreshadow the ultimate sign, the resurrection. There's an eighth sign, so to speak. The ultimate sign is the resurrection of Jesus. So just think about last week because it's fresh in your minds, water into wine. Oh, what did the wine represent? The blood of Jesus. Oh my goodness. And the wedding feast of the lamb that will come as we're all resurrected with Jesus. 
in his second coming. Oh my, all seven signs find their fulfillment in the resurrection, the ultimate sign that we'll get to in the Gospel of John. Okay, we got one more part to go, right? So three paragraphs to this text. Part one, Jesus cleanses the temple. Part two, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. Part three, Jesus sees our hearts. And in our final verses, we're going to start seeing people believing in Jesus, which is good, but there's a problem. Now, it's verse 23. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, there it is, he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. This is very interesting. What does it mean Jesus did not entrust himself to them? People were beginning to believe in him. That's the purpose of the signs. This is good, right? Yes, it is. But here's what happened early in Jesus' ministry. When people started to believe that he actually could be the Messiah, guess what they wanted to do? Make him the kind of Messiah they were expecting. So there's actually in John chapter six, right after the feeding of the 5,000, John actually records that when Jesus had done that miracle and he'd broken the bread and the fish and he fed them all, they're like, let's go make him king right now. And it was essentially a mob that tried to grab Jesus and carry him to Jerusalem by force. Jesus had to escape the crowds. And so Jesus is not yet ready to entrust himself to them because he knows their hearts. He knows what they really want. They want an earthly king. They want Rome to be kicked out. They just want their earthly freedom. So think about it this way, that Jesus was, was constantly walking in this dilemma. On the one side, he faced religious leaders who wanted to discredit him. On the other side, he faced the crowds who wanted to use him as a political figure for their own needs. What both had in common was the state of their hearts. Look at the last phrase. He himself knew what was in man. What is in man or woman? brokenness in our hearts. Remember that the heart in the Bible is the core of who we are. Jeremiah 17, verse nine. This is a great reference. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Jeremiah 17, verse nine. Who can understand it? Jesus could. He himself knew what was in man, broken, desperately sick, deceitful hearts. That's what's in man. Jesus understood the state of mankind's heart, so he did not entrust himself to them. Think, think about it this way. Jesus knew that as long as the hearts of mankind were deceitful and desperately sick, we could never receive him as the king he came to be. We would just use him for our own purposes. 
We, we wouldn't have open hands. We'd say, here's someone that can make my dreams come true and kick out Rome and, and, and be this strong political figure that I'm looking for. In other words, Jesus knows that he can't be our king until he first cleanses our hearts to create inside of us some receptivity, some humility, some uh, posture that we can receive him as the king he came to be. This is what Jesus is about. So hold on to that thought because I want you to see something that John is doing here in this passage that's very intentional. Everything John did is purposeful. Lloyd's done a good job of explaining this. Uh, the, he, he, he redacted the, the, the life of Jesus. There's so much he could have written. He says, in fact, if I would have written it all, it would have like taken up all books in the whole world. Instead, he just chose certain parts to record in his gospel. Why did he choose the parts he did? It was all purposeful. His purpose was so that people would believe and follow Jesus. And I want you to think about the way John structured this text this morning. Let me explain. Part one of the passage, Jesus cleanses the temple. Part three, the ending, Jesus sees our hearts. And what does he see when he sees our hearts? Something else that needs cleansing. And the question is, how will Jesus cleanse our hearts? The answer is in the middle of the text, part two. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. He says, destroy this temple, my body, and in three days, I will raise it up. That's how he will cleanse our hearts. He cleansed the temple with a whip. He'll cleanse our hearts with his own death and his resurrection. He will replace the sacrificial system, which he could only temporarily pause. Initially, he will replace the sacrificial system of the temple with his own sacrifice, with his own death and his own resurrection. And guys, it gets even better because he, he won't just stop there. He will rebuild a temple. He will build a new temple. And this new temple will not be made of stone and plaster. It will be made up of all the people of God. The body of Christ. Us. We are the new temple. Cleansed by Jesus through his death and resurrection and built up together to become the dwelling place of God. Don't take my word for it. Look at what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two. So then, he's talking about Christians. He's talking about the church. You are no longer strangers and aliens. Like we're no longer the... the the Gentiles that don't have access to the temple, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, not, not just access to God, but we're actually the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone of this new building in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Is this not cool how theology connects? The cleansing of the Jerusalem temple was a symbolic prelude to an even greater work. 
Jesus came to cleanse so much more than the temple. He came to cleanse the hearts of mankind so that we could become a new type of temple, a new dwelling place of God. Now think about how the whole story of the Bible fits together. God told the Hebrew people to build him a house and King Solomon did that. Solomon built him a house, built the temple, but mankind defiled and destroyed the temple. So God sent his son to be the true temple, the dwelling place of God in a human body, the intersection of heaven and earth. But mankind destroyed that temple too. So God raised it up. And in raising up the body of Christ, he laid the cornerstone for a new temple, a permanent dwelling place of God, and we are that temple. The ultimate purpose of God throughout the beginning of mankind is to dwell with us, is to be with us. So God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, so that through his death and life, his resurrection, we can become the dwelling place of God. Now, I wanna apply this to us, and, and there's just so much low-hanging fruit that we could grab onto, and, 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 but I wanna be selective in how we think about this because I wanna I want take us somewhere this morning. We are all like the Jerusalem temple, okay? Here's what I mean by that. Jesus' desire is to cleanse us from the inside out and take up residence in us. And I just wanna say this, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, I hope what you hear this morning is God wants to live in you. As amazing as that sounds, uh, I, I wanna say this, the, the quotation from the Psalm you know, in, in, in verse 22, it says, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal means desire. Jesus is consumed with desire for you so that your life, your heart would be a dwelling place of God. He's consumed with that desire that you would be clean and whole. Jesus knows what is inside of you. He knows what is in a man or woman and he wants to cleanse it. So then I wanna say this, what does it mean for Jesus to cleanse our hearts? Like that just sounds like just a, maybe a sweet sentimental phrase and, and I, I wanna get a little more practical. What does it mean Jesus wants to cleanse your heart? And, and by the way, I'm talking about people who are already believers and those who are not yet believers. Let me explain. Jesus wants to cleanse your heart. I think it means three things. It means he has authority over it, there are things there that don't belong and he wants to reclaim it for his intended purpose. And this comes straight from the text of him cleansing the temple, right? He, he, he exerted his authority over the temple. He, he saw the things that didn't belong. He, he kicked them out because he wants to reclaim it for its intended purpose. And this is what he wants to do in you as well. And you and I, guys, you have to see this in yourself. For you to have open hands, you have to see this in yourself. You're just like the Jewish leaders. And I'm just like the Jewish leaders, meaning this. Jesus wants to come in to do a work inside of me. He wants to come in to do a work inside of you. And what do we say? We say, by what authority do you do these things? 
We say, what right, Jesus, do you have to bring disruption into my life, into my heart? And Jesus would say, this is my father's house and he longs to dwell there in you. Guys, Jesus brings disruption into our hearts like a farmer brings disruption into the soil. And the sooner we can receive his authority over our own hearts and over our own lives, the the sooner things will begin to grow there. Think about how kind-hearted Jesus is that he wants to disrupt you. He wants to reclaim you for his intended purpose. He wants to kick out the things that don't belong. Think about how kind he is to do that. He wants to dwell in you. There's nothing more intimate than that. Now, how does all of this happen, guys? It happens through confession and repentance. And, and this, is, this is where I want to take us. And it's why I asked Aaron to come up and start playing some music at this point because we're going to have a little more prayer time. And, you know, it was so helpful to have that confession time earlier in our worship service. And, and here's what I want to do. I, I want to give us a little more space now that we've heard God speak to us through his word. And I want you to reflect on these three things. And, and I want you to pray and spend some time praying. Have you ever acknowledged God's authority over your heart, over the inner person that is you? Have, have you ever acknowledged like it's, you're, you're, you're his and he has kind intentions for you? Could you name things that are there that don't belong? Would you agree with him about that? And then would you invite him? Would you receive him to reclaim your heart for his intended purpose? Guys, he has plans for his glory to flow through you that you could only imagine. So let's spend a minute in prayer about this together. if you are someone today that, that come, has come in here and you say, I, I don't know that I've actually ever acknowledged Jesus has authority over my heart. I never in, invited him to do a work in me. I've never given him permission to do that. This can be a really significant moment for you this morning. And I just want to invite you that if, if God has planted some faith inside of you to believe in Jesus, then, then open yourself up to him. You know, just move along with God and the work that he's des- desiring to do inside of you and, and, and just welcome Jesus. Welcome Jesus and say, you've got authority here. You've got ownership here. I believe. I believe. I want to invite you now to take out your communion elements that you received when you came in. And Michael, I lost mine somehow. Would you mind grabbing one for me and bringing it up here? Thank you very much. 
So if you didn't get one or if you lost it like I did, just feel free to go ahead and stand up now and go to the back and you can find one right there in the vestibule through those doors. Don't be shy to do that. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to participate in this with us. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then this isn't for you this morning, but, but I hope there's something in you that's being stirred. Thank you, Michael. And I want you to go ahead and just peel back the, the top clear plastic and just hold on to the bread. Don't eat it yet, just hold on to the bread. And Sometimes people get a little weird about the Lord's Supper in that they say, well, I can't take the Lord's Supper because I, I'm not pure. <laughs> Here's what I wanna say about that. This is for sinners. This is for people who know they need cleansing. If you know you need cleansing, and if you're willing this morning by faith to believe in Jesus, that he came to die for you, he was raised up for the cleansing of your sins and the new life in him, then, then, then this is for you this morning. But I will say this, if, if you're someone this morning that say, you know, I don't think I acknowledge the authority that Jesus has over my heart. And, you know, maybe you're not a believer or maybe you are a believer, but you'd say, I am, I am not going to allow Jesus to have authority over me. Then this is not for you this morning. And I'll tell you why. Because you're not in a posture to receive. Your hands are not open, they're, they're closed. And so if you're willing to acknowledge his authority over your heart, and you know you need rescue, then this is your provision. It points to the broken body of Jesus for you. Eat with joy. Peel back the purple foil over the cup. And you know, what Jesus said about this cup at the Last Supper is he said this, this cup is the new covenant, the, the new opportunity. It's the new relationship, which is in my blood. And, and guess what the blood of Jesus was for? The cleansing, the cleansing of our hearts. The, the same one who cleansed the Jerusalem temple was now going to cleanse the sins of the world. And if you believe that and you believe that that is for you, then drink with joy the cup. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning, a reminder to us of the need for our own cleansing and the invitation of Jesus to do just that. And I pray for those who are believing and those who might not yet believe, but there's something in them that is opening up just a little bit to that thought. And Father, I pray for us all. I pray for us that we would come to Jesus that we would know and that we would believe in his name. Amen.